Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Blog Talk Radio. My name is Hari Kulsa and I am your host. I am a nurse practitioner and patient advocate. And you can find me at healthcarewhisper.com, Twitter, HariCar108, Facebook, Hari Kulsa. Uh, the purpose of this show is to provide you with information about the uh, about the healthcare system. And I'm dialing right now. I'm dialing Trish Tory, who's our guest. Who I couldn't. I think I had the wrong number to start. So I'm hoping I'm here. Okay, good. Oh, sorry about that, Hari. Uh, that was my fault. Uh, I was I had the wrong area code. So, so let me, before we begin, I got Trisha here. I was in a little bit of a host panic, everybody out there. So just hold on. I have her on the line here. But we are really lucky to have Trisha today because she is, well, she, I have to say this. She is a pioneer in the field of patient advocacy. She was there before anyone really knew what we were talking about. And she is very passionate and became passionate because of this personal experience that she went through. Uh, a little bit about her. Well, why don't I just have you tell us a little bit about you since I got you on the line already. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. This is a treat for me. I used to do these kinds of interviews quite frequently, and then mm-hmm. I was on the road so often that I didn't get to do them very much at all. So this is fun. It's the first time in a while. And, you know, we've been good friends for a while, Hari, so this is it's a treat to be with you doing this, and I, I appreciate your invitation. So the the long and the short of it is I knew nothing about health care like most of us don't until we get stuck in a situation where we have no choice but to ramp up very quickly. And my whole situation started in 2004 when I was just a marketing consultant and didn't really know much about healthcare at all and found a lump on my torso that was about the size of a golf ball. It didn't hurt, it wasn't red. You could you could push it and poke it around and you know, it was like no big deal. But I went off to my family doctor who sent me to a surgeon who removed it and proclaimed that he had never seen anything that looked like it before. Oh, that and, must have made you feel really good. Right. Well, you know, now I get invited to speak to providers on a regular basis, and I give them a list of things to never say to a patient. And one <laughs> of them is, I've never seen anything that looks like this before. <laughs> really? In any case, um, it was, I have to tell you, at the time, um, and, and again, this goes back to 2004, so it's been a little bit of time since then, but I still have shivers that go up my spine when I think about it. It was just a devastating um, experience to go through because when they finally sent that thing off, that tumor off to be reviewed, the news came back to me and it took them two weeks to get back to me to tell me that it was subcutaneous paniculitis-like T-cell lymphoma. And I got that news on a phone call on a Thursday evening with a house full of dinner guests. And... So, you know, I I start out by saying to people, everything that could have gone badly did go badly. And that was where everything started. And so if you you remember that I was a marketing consultant, I knew nothing about healthcare at all. And all of a sudden, I was being told in the worst of ways that that I had this odd lymphoma. I at least had the wherewithal to write it down. Um hung up the phone. I was told that someone would call me the next day to tell me when my oncology appointment would be. I went back to my dinner company and didn't say a word. And you can guess what I did the minute they all walked out the door. Started crying? Well, no, 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 no. No, no, no. (laughs) I went to the Internet. Okay, good, good, good. Because Because some people would cry, but... Not Trisha. She was off to the internet. Something well, already you know, didn't it isn't, sound right. I, I, I don't think it was that. Don't give me so much credit. I would oh. say to you, I was in shock. Yeah, that's I was true. in total shock that's first, true. and secondly, yeah. I had no idea what that meant except that I knew that lymphoma was a form of cancer. Right, right. And right. that was really all I knew. And you know, even in 2004, we were hearing about a lot of cancers that people were surviving. They'd go through treatment, so it never really occurred to me that it was anything more than something I was just going to have to cope with. So I suppose that, and I did 
cry quite a bit afterwards, but what I found out from the Internet, and I was literally up all night, you know, when you go to the Internet and you um, type something in and do a search, you come back with 1,563,000 results, and then you're supposed to weed through them, right? Well, there were 53 for this lymphoma, 53. And as I started looking at them, um, they were all just referring to only two. So out of those 53 references, they only um, came from two sources. And the only answer was that it was terminal and it was quick. And that the assessment was that um, I was going to go downhill fast and that I might survive for five to six months. Whoa, and And now let's back up. It was your doctor who called you or a nurse called you? It was the surgeon who called me. The surgeon who called you, okay. It and was he the just... surgeon who called me, yeah. And, and, and like just... kind of, oh, by the way, I just want to tell you that this is what you have. Have a nice evening, right? Well, it was, yeah. It, it, uh, very frankly, I don't remember much of the conversation. I, the minute he said lymphoma, I was just stunned. And, and, and the other thing is you should know that it had taken two weeks, and so Starting oh, yeah. about the fourth or fifth day, I was calling and saying, hey, where are my results? Where are my results? Right. Where are my results? Right, and right. so I think the reason he was calling me was because he knew that I was upset that I'd not heard anything. Sure. Um, and, and as I say, you know, it was like 7.15 on a Thursday evening. It uh, wasn't like it was during the day. I just thought it was going to be, well, at least the next day before I heard anything else. Wow. But in wow. any case. I did get a call the next day. Now, here's something I also say when I talk to providers, and that is if you are diagnosed with something or if you have very unusual symptoms, what's the first thing you would do? And, and, and you're a provider. You're a nurse practitioner. So what's the first thing you would do? If I was provided with symptoms? If I... Yeah. If you had strange symptoms, what would you do? Well, I... I'd want to know where those symptoms were coming from and if they were actually the same as the illness that I was thinking the person had. Right, but but I mean, in terms of yourself, if there was something wrong with you or your husband, you would pick up the phone and call a friend. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I'd call someone who had a little more information than me. Yeah, you'd call a doctor friend or another nurse practitioner. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, well, I wasn't being clear enough in my question, but, but the thing is, when you are not a part of the healthcare system, you don't have those friends. Right, Those right, aren't right. people you can call. You right. don't have an insider that's right, going to help right. you get an appointment any sooner or tell you who the quote-unquote best doctor to see is. You don't have any of that. Right. What you have is the mercy of the people who are now tasked with taking care of you. And so at my mercy, I was told, okay, we've got an appointment for you, and it was three weeks away. Right, right, and you only have, according to them, five to six months to live. To live, yeah, so three, just another three weeks. Just wait another three day, weeks, honey. It'll be fine. Exactly <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and we'll take care of you then. Right. So when, and of course, all I was doing at that point was panicking, not sleeping, upset, getting my affairs in order. I mean, you can't even, first of all, you're so stunned. Secondly, you're not getting any sleep. Thirdly, uh, what I had was that rare that there wasn't really even anybody to talk to. Nobody had ever heard of it before. And so I finally, um, when I did get to see the oncologist, I I went to see him, and he sent me for the requisite lymphoma tests. You know, I I had CAT scan, I had blood work, I had all of those Mm -hmm. kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then it was another 10 days before I could get back in to see him to get the test results. And when I did get back to see the, get the test results, he said to me, um, we can't find any other symptoms we, or we can't find any other evidence. There's nothing in the blood work and there's nothing in the CAT scan. But we need to start you on chemo immediately. And I said, wait a minute. What do you mean you need to start me on chemo immediately? If you can't find any more evidence, how right. are you going to know what you're fixing and how are you going to know when it's fixed? He said, we have the pathology, we got the tumor back, we know exactly what it is. Plus, you have the classic symptoms of lymphoma. I said, oh, really, you, what are the classic symptoms of lymphoma? But you didn't have any. Lymphoma? You didn't well, have any. No, I, I did. I had the classic symptoms of lymphoma. And I said, what do you mean, what are the classic symptoms? And he said, well, here, it's right here in your record. You have hot flashes and night sweats. <laughs> <laughs> and I, oh, 
I, I just I, I was stunned. I said to him, I'm fifty five years old and, and he said, Oh, that has nothing to do with it. Oh, you right, have lymphoma right. and that's right. why you're having these problems. And in any right. case I just I said to him at that point, I will not start any kind of chemo or any kind of treatment until I get a second opinion. Now, for me, knowing nothing about healthcare, being totally intimidated by this entire thing, that was and if you will pardon my expression ballsy on my part oh yeah yeah I I mean I just I don't know where it came from I don't know what gave me the strength or the commitment or the confidence to say that to him at that point he pounded his fist on the desk stood up and said to me what you have is so rare no one will know any more about it than I do oh that's a classic sign to get a second opinion right there absolutely and I just (laughs) stood up and turned around and walked out the door. So uh, how I got the second opinion is another very long story, and I'm not going to try to relate that right now, except that it was one of those classic, I drank too much wine, ran my mouth, and ended up with the right doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And, And to this day, the friend that I ran my mouth to, and I laugh about this because I keep telling her, she did better than any of the doctors did because she gave me the best advice at all. But I did find a, another doctor. So what that meant in going for the second opinion, again, I don't know what made me do it. I didn't know anything about being an empowered patient. I was just desperate. I got a hold of all the records. I got a hold of the pathology report, and there had mm-hmm. been two of them. It had been two labs, quote, unquote, that had independently confirmed I had this strange lymphoma, and I got wow. copies of both of those records to take to the second doctor. Mm -hmm. But I started going through them myself. And Mm -hmm. the first clue, the first time I absolutely knew something was wrong was when I looked at the second report and they said at the very end of it that the specimen had been sent for a clonality test. And then it Mm -hmm. said results to be reported separately. And I, I looked at that and I thought, well, so where are the results of the clonality test? I don't even know what this thing is. I just know that I don't have results for it. So I called the first oncologist and said, where are the results of the clonality test? And his reply to me was, I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. So he'd never even read the pathology report far enough to know that there was a missing test. Wow. They did get a hold of it. They did get a copy to me. And I have to say, of all of the things that went wrong, The one thing they did right was they never questioned whether I should have copies of these tests in my medical records. They provided anything I asked for without even blinking, and so I give them credit for that because I know what a lot of patients go through today to get their records. In any case, when I got the clonality test, I sat down and started Googling word for word because, of course, I didn't understand anything, although I had to say I, I was very pleased that I remembered some of my high school biology I remembered hearing of gentian violet <laughs> that had been used in one test. I knew that Greek letters meant that they'd done certain things to these things, and so I actually looked up Greek letters on the Internet. Um, but the bottom line was I came to the conclusion that I didn't have lymphoma at all. And wow, so I, you were the one. You were the well, one no, just... not really. I would love to take the credit for it. Oh, um, I laughed oh, when, I, when I finally got to the second opinion oncologist. I showed him what I had figured out. Uh-huh. And I said, so I don't think I have lymphoma. And he he sort of chuckled. I mean, to his credit, he didn't just laugh out loud. But he said, I see why you think you don't have it. Uh-huh. But here's where you went wrong. And he explained to me what I had misinterpreted. And he said, but I also believe that you've got enough here that seems odd that we need to find somebody else to review this biopsy. And there is a hematopathologist at the National Institutes of Health, and we will arrange to have the tumor sent to her for review. Wow. And you know what? You're lucky that they actually kept the tumor, part of the tumor. Actually, no, they have to keep it. And, do you know, I could still get it if I needed to. And I'll tell you that in a minute, but let me just tell you the end of the story is. So, So all of this started at the end of June. And it was September 20th of 2004. I got the results back from the NIH, and there was no malignancy. Oh. None oh. whatsoever. And I've never had any form of treatment. Oh. And and so what it really is is a story of trusting my gut mm-hmm. and being willing to just keep looking and overturning every rock 
to see what I could find. Um, as far as the, the tumor is concerned, the, the biopsy, you know, they keep them in paraffin. And by law, they have to do that for a certain period of time. State by state, it will tell how long they have to keep it. Um, right. I didn't know that until mm-hmm. I read um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Have <laughs> you read that book? No. Ah, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Have you ever heard of HeLa cells? Yes. Okay, HeLa cells are used now, I mean, they've used them in research now for, what, 40 years? Yeah, a long um, time. Well, Henrietta Lacks is HeLa. Oh, okay, They are okay, the okay. cells that came from her. Uh, and it oh, was the right, first... now I know this story. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, yes, so, yes. so um, this young woman wrote the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It came out a couple of years ago, and I read it, and it just fascinated me like no book has fascinated me in, in decades. And then for my patient empowerment work on about.com, um, I wrote about the, the book, and mm-hmm. I wrote about some of the things that were in the book that would be of interest to empowered patients. And then it got me thinking, okay, you know, they kept her cells, they did all of this, they never said anything to her about them. Right. I wonder right, if they right. kept my tumor, because it's so unusual, they might even use it in a, you know, in a medical school or something. Right, right, and right. And so I tracked it down, and I found out it's in storage, not too far from where I live. Wow, you know, because even though they're supposed to keep it, it happens so frequently that it gets lost or yep, it doesn't I, get saved. And and that's just a real tragedy for people because well, I always tell people get a second opinion on any pathology you have that has a positive result. Yeah, and, and it's great advice. But let me tell you um, the ver- the cynic in me, and believe me, I'm if I'm not the most cynical person about the healthcare system, I've got to be the second or third. So... <laughs> Um, the what I would tell you if they're told it's been lost mm-hmm. is it hasn't been lost at all. Mm-hmm. Either they don't want you to have it, mm-hmm. or they have sold it. Sold it. Sold it because there are they call them biobanks, and this was something I didn't learn this from Henrietta Lacks, but I did learn it from trying to track down my own tumor, and that is that all kinds of stuff that's being removed from people the minute it's removed from us. It no longer belongs to us by law, and that's been tested in the courts over and over again. And once it's removed from us, whoever removes it can do whatever they want to with it. And many hospitals, many testing labs sell the stuff that comes out of patients because then it can be used in medical schools or in research labs or whatever. And so there are businesses based on the stuff they take out of us. Well, but sometimes you can say, if you know that, you can tell the, I mean, many hospitals, this is one thing I did run into with someone. Sometimes you can say, I don't want you to do that. Even though it's the law, you can ask them that you, I had a case like this where they removed an object and they, they were supposed to save it because this odd, no one knew how it had gotten into the, the, the patient. Uh-huh. But they, oh, it got thrown away. Oh, we don't know what happened to it. Yeah. Anyway, we ended up getting the whole policy change for that. But but, you know, you can periodically they will agree, but that's I didn't actually know they had whole businesses. That's like a mind blower to me. Yeah, yeah. If you just Google the the word biobanks or go to my about dot com site patients dot about dot com and type in biobanks and you'll see what I've written about it that I think that is it's it's easier for patients to understand rather than the science behind it. The other thing is, I promise you, it took me so long to figure this out. It was like solving a mystery because if you go to these websites of these biobanks, everything is so obscured. I wrote to, I think, six of them wow. uh, and just said, I'm curious, how do you get these specimens you sell? Just And wow. I, didn't, I didn't accuse them. Or I just said, I'm curious. Didn't ever hear back from a one of them. Called, I think I called three of them. In each case, they took a message. Nobody ever called me back. They don't want you to know. Wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. When when you're what you're talking about, where something ended up inside of somebody, that's a whole different ball game. Um, that's not so much a specimen as it is a what a piece of something, right? Well, it, yeah, but it didn't come from surgery. It came. No one knows how it got into them. I mean, yeah. it's just yeah. you know, yeah. So. But, yeah, so maybe that is different, you know, that they, they have to they have to hold it. And that we had made requests for them to keep it because we wanted mm-hmm. to figure out how it had gotten in there. Yeah. But, uh, anyway. But no, anyway, somebody was keeping you. it. You know, we watch enough of these medical shows, and you've got these doctors that are kind of weird, and they keep these things in jars on a shelf. So, 
you know, somebody shot it on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh gosh, but um, so like, what's the ama- you know what's really amazing? I mean, at some point, your brain just clicked over, uh, you know, and that's that's you know, is there any one point? I mean, you sort of mentioned it, but you know, you you just had this sort of intuitive insight that you. Not just did you know it might not be true, but that you had the right to be able to stop all this. I mean, that's an issue that so many people don't know they can do. Well, you know, but somehow, I, I think I think the switch went off the moment Dr. Arrogance said to me, "No one will know any more about it this, than I do." Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, it was no longer about whether or not I really had cancer. It was more about who I was going to be treated by, and I sure as heck wasn't going to be treated by him. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we have heard enough over the years about you should get a second opinion, you should get a second opinion. But I think it's only been in recent years that people have really taken that seriously and done it more so than ever before. And I, I think that, um, and I don't want to quote this exactly, but it's something like this, that in um, in 30% of all cancer cases, when mm-hmm. patients get a second opinion, they change their mind. They either change their mind about the treatment they're going to get or the doctor they're going to work with or whether they're going to have treatment at all, I mean, whatever that would be. And so that's a substantial amount. And, you know, truly that's what happened with me, although I don't end up on charts and tables and statistics anywhere because I didn't really have cancer. You know, right. and so I'm just this anomaly that's out there. But I believe everything happens for a reason. And if you believe that, and if you really, if you really buy it, um, mm-hmm. then it's not just when you win the lottery and you've got your bills due that things have happened for a reason. <laughs> you know, if it's, it's got to be um, as often that bad things happen and you try to make some kind of sense out of them as when good things happen. And so at the end of this, I had, my first career was as a school teacher, uh-huh. and I had spent eight years in a classroom, and I went from there into marketing, and so I understood how to communicate, and I understood how to reach people on their level, you know, all of those kinds of things. And, and so as I stood back, I thought, you know what, I can't be the only person this is happening to. I cannot right. be the only right. person who's, having, who's struggling with the system and thinking that I understood it and finding out I didn't know anything about it at all. And so if I have these skills then I think it's up to me to help other people understand and then begin to stick up for themselves as well. And that's literally where I started. And by 2005, I had started doing a little bit of writing. And then by 2006, things really began to take off, and that was when I sold my marketing company. So I've been doing patient empowerment and then patient advocacy full-time since 2006. So... So this was, I mean, this was a life-changing moment for you, not just, in, you know, anyone who gets a cancer diagnosis, is, it is life-changing. But life-changing, that's right. Yeah, and, um, you know, there's a couple issues you brought up. One is a second opinion. The second, I, it's like my biggest bugaboo. I mean, I tell everybody, all my clients, and, you know, you can't push people to get a second opinion, but I try to explain why it's so valuable. You know, I, I just, I, you know, I, I'll use stories of other clients, and it always amazes me that doctor that doctors think differently. You know, they one can, especially in cancer. Oh my God, doctors will they'll be. You can go to three doctors, and they might have three different protocols. Exactly one might right. be very yeah. aggressive. Yeah. You know, one might be not so, and one's right in the middle. So you know, and it's not. It's more about, and I think this is what you found. Or, or correct me that you know you actually had a say, you know that's what, you know that's what's so beautiful. Uh, not good what happened to you, but it gave you the you were able to say, and then you were able to move forward and help other people. You know that that became a, a passion for you. I mean, it, it really did, is yeah, who you yeah. are now. Since since all of that happened, um, I, I just I jumped into all of this because it was a catharsis for me. Really, I mean mm-hmm. it. Uh, at the end of it, people would say to me, you must be so relieved. And, of course, I was relieved, I mean, except for the fact that I'd spent all my money, you know. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> no, right. I'm only kidding, but um, I, I was absolutely relieved, no question about it. But more than that, I was angry. Initially, sure. I was just angry. And I was angry at 
the doctors. I was angry at the system. I was angry at myself for not understanding prior to that that this wasn't about me. It was about them. Mm-hmm. I was just, and not only that, I should mention that I had, I was self-employed. I did have health insurance, but it was high deductible health insurance. Oh. I had a $5,000 deductible, and then it paid 60-40 after that. They paid 60%, I paid 40%. Right. Right. And do you know, it totally wiped out all my liquid savings. I didn't oh. have, I had my house, I didn't lose my house, and I had my sa- my uh, retirement savings. Wow. But other than that, I didn't have a penny to my name, and I was self-employed. So it wasn't like I could go to work and pick up my next paycheck. If right. I didn't work, I didn't get paid. And going through something that's that traumatic, you don't work nearly as much as you do if you're feeling healthy. So um, it was just, it was a horrible situation, and I needed to do something to take care of my head and my heart. And that was when I started doing the research and the writing. And so that's where it started. It was actually very selfish. It was just, <laughs> Well, it, it, it was. I mean, it, I wrote stuff. Maybe somebody would read it. But mostly mm-hmm. it just felt good to write it. You know, we tell people to journal right. or, you know, a lot of people blog. Right. Um, we do those kinds of things and, and uh, because we know that there's catharsis to that. And that's exactly what it was to start. It just, um, I should say thankfully, it really blossomed into something. And so as I tell people, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me and it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me too. Right, because... Yeah, I mean those that's a double both sides of the coin occurred. Right. As you know. But but let's let's just tell people what you've done. I mean you know, Trisha's done an amazing amount of work, um, forging the way for for many of us, uh, to kind of, to help I mean, one thing you've done is really you yourself don't do the actual patient advocacy, but but you've created forums for people and you've created right. Ways not just for people who want to be advocates, but people who are looking for advocates. So you mm-hmm. you know you saw a need, and 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 you know let's let us just talk a little about that because with some of these things you've done are are so valuable to patient advocates. Well, thank I mean, you for saying that. I mean, that's really that's what I do now. Well, you know, let's let's go back. So in 2006, when I started, I started writing, and then I ended up hosting a radio show for about five years. And so I really get where you're coming from and preparing for it. There's a lot of work to it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it while I did it. But then I started doing a lot of traveling and speaking. Mm-hmm. And what happened when I was getting out and meeting people, mostly patients, on a regular basis? was I would often run into two different kind of categories of patients. One would be um, people who were sick themselves, and they would say to me, I'm, I know what you're saying is right. I know I need to stick up for myself. I know I need to make lists for the doctor. I, need, I know I need to vet websites, you know, whatever it's going to be. But I'm too sick. I'm too mm-hmm. tired. I don't mm-hmm. have the energy. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm dealing with this and this and this and this and this, and I just can't do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And then I would also meet people who would say, you know what, I spent three years taking care of my mom while she had cancer and now she's died. Or my husband had X and and we dealt with that for 15 years, but, you know, now he's doing pretty well or now he's died. You know, whatever it would be, mm-hmm. I would love, I, I learned about the system. I right. understand what you're saying. Now I'd like to be able to do it for other people. Right. And so the entrepreneur in me said, Bingo. <laughs> right. Now I just need to figure out how I'm going to match these people up. The right. people who want the help and need the help with the people who can provide the help. And so the first idea was, well, I'm just going to set up a directory. And that was when I started AdvoConnection. Right. So AdvoConnection.com, if you go there, it's a directory where you can search um, using the zip code of the patient and an email address. And then you check off the kinds of services you think you need and you come up with anybody in the United States and Canada who can service somebody in that zip code mm-hmm. um, doing the services that you say you need. And so we started there. Mm-hmm. And I and believe I that's when you and I met. That's I remember, and I yes, I remember the launch. Yep. Yep. It was great. It was a great day, yeah. It was. It was a great day. And so that was in um, at the end of August in 2009. Mm-hmm. And then, in the meantime, though, what I realized was that there weren't very many people doing advocacy work at all. Mm-mm. There were a lot of people who wanted to be doing advocacy work but didn't really know how to start. Or maybe they were people 
who had a clinical background. They were nurses or nurse practitioners or even physicians, mm-hmm. but they didn't have any idea how to run a business. Right. And that's really what it boils down to is that these are all independent businesses and independent mm-hmm. practices. And so that's really where I started to focus over time was creating that place where people could go to find the information they needed and get support and a little bit of mentoring perhaps to really start wherever they were and figure out what they needed to fill in the gaps to help them launch a practice. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are now. So we have the Alliance of Professional Health Advocates. Um, it's for people who are just thinking about being an advocate, right through people who've been advocates for years. Um, we also, and then I've written a couple of books for advocates. One I know, is, I want to get, yeah. You, okay, for, well, oh, I'll wait then. I'll wait until no, you say No, 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 go ahead, because you do have done these great marketing books for, um, you know, I, I have to say, you know, especially medical people, I find that most medical people are not really good at business. You know, right. I mean, and so they want to do this work, and they, you know, in order to really be successful at this, to do it full time, you have to be able to run a business. You know, yes, and you that do. includes marketing, it includes yep. good accounting, it includes yep. everything that goes with it and with a business and, you know, hiring people when you need them. And, you know, it, it, most people don't know how to do it. They have a passion, but they don't have the smarts with the business. And so you've really done some great things by doing, you know, start the Start and Grow Your Own Practice Handbook and the Healthcare Advocates Marketing Handbook because I think – you know, with your background, marketing is the biggest deal with uh, getting your message out there. Exactly so, right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yep. That so, really was it. I, I, they were both. Both those books were born of people asking me those questions. So yeah, I yeah. had spent a career helping people get business started and helping them market their businesses and so forth. I didn't. Uh, the only thing I really knew about advocacy was what I had done for myself, and then since then I also um, had my mom and my dad, both of whom have passed away. But oh my gosh, the stories! And and I've told some of the stories uh, right. of working with them and and their situations. And so I have a real good sense of what goes into the actual advocacy work itself. But my focus is on helping b- people build the business. What I try to do is is with everyone, I try to put them through this little gap analysis that says. You know, okay, what are your skills? What is it you hope to offer? Okay, what do you already know that you don't need to learn about and what don't you know that you do need to learn about? And most frequently that's the business aspects of running a practice. Right. And so that's try that's the void I've tried to fill. And one thing you've done, I, I remember I talked to you at one time. I like to talk to everybody about, you know, anything I information I can get and you said, Well, what's your niche? You know, find yeah. a place where you fit and people are gonna look to you as that person who's the expert. That's right. You know, and and that's, you know, actually people who call me now, I you know, people find me on the web and they say, oh, I want to start this. And um I that's what I tell them too now. Find mm-hmm. your niche. Because yep. it's get right now it's getting way there are a lot more advocates than when I first met you and I'd been doing it a bit before I met you know, right. for several years before I met you. But mm-hmm. there's a lot more people and They'll kind of segue me into the different kinds of advocates we have out there, you know, which is can be confusing for people. And I think even within the advocacy world, it gets a little bit confusing um, as the term becomes more used in the system. You know, so like for instance, we have you know people say, well, my hospital has a patient advocate. Should I use them instead of you? You know, they'll call me. Mm-hmm. And, or the insurance company has a patient advocate. You know, how do we, you know, is that the same as you? So, how, you know, do people call you or ask you those kind of questions? All the time. And, you know, I write a blog, and I post to it at least once a week. And um, on the blog, one of the themes has been what I call the allegiance factor. And um, And I just had two phone conversations with people today who are thinking about becoming advocates, and this was part of today's conversation with both of them. Well, are there any jobs out there? You know, I heard that my local hospital is hiring a patient advocate, and I'll say, what you want to watch is what I call the allegiance factor, and that is your allegiance is to whomever is writing you the check to do the work. Now, if you're a volunteer, it doesn't enter in. But if you're a professional advocate, somebody's paying you. Right. And if it's the hospital who's paying you, then, yes, you might be able to help the patient, but at the end of the day, the idea is to keep the hospital out of hot water. Right. And if that means you can help the patient, great. But if you can't, you know, they're just kind of out of luck. 
If you're working for an insurance company, what's the insurance company's goal? Well, their goal is to either make more money or save money. So can you really trust their advice? Because their advice is going to be about the best doctor. Well, the best doctor is going to be the one who does what you need that costs them the least. And so the allegiance has got to be to the person, to the patient. And if that's going to be true, then it's got to be the patient or someone who has the patient's best interests at heart who's writing the check. And what we're learning, and, and I think you've had some of this experience, what we're learning is it doesn't necessarily have to be the patient or even the patient's like adult child or something like that. It might be an employer who right. doesn't want their employee to be absent any more than, than need be. Or it might even be a union. We're finding some unions are looking for ways to keep themselves relevant because the world has changed for unions. And they are looking at ways now to offer advocates to some of their union members who might need right. them. And that's right. a nice value add for them. So um, so the sands are shifting. You know, we started out and you, and, and I so appreciate it, you called me a pioneer. And, and I do think of myself that way as I think of all of what I call my advocates. You know, I feel like they're, like all these advocates are not like they're my children really, but we're all a part of the same family, let's put it that way. And mm-hmm. I feel like all of my advocates are pioneers because we don't have trails that have been blazed in front of us. We right. get to make it up as we go along. Going going back to your point earlier about you find that people who have been working in medicine have trouble owning their own business, I think mm-hmm. it's because anybody, and, and this is also true with case managers coming from a social work background, if you've worked in nothing but a bureaucracy, then right. you've only ever worked in your little portion of the gear. Right. You don't know right. about right. all the other little um, niches that go around that make that gear move around. Yeah. And so. Yeah. A, a bureaucracy is very much about making sure you're pigeonholed into only one little part of it. Owning a business means you've got to understand that whole picture. You know, I had a really great uh, a person years and years and years ago before, you know, who told me, wherever you are, learn everything about every part of where you are, from the person who comes in at midnight to clean the office. Find out every little detail. That's what makes things work. That's when you can be appreciate, you know, understand how the whole system works, and th- that really made a difference for me, you know, yeah. in setting up my own business because really you do have to know every aspect. You do. People's, you know, for people's, people's. The doctor doesn't understand what the, the a lot of times what the CNA goes through, the you know, the certified nursing assistant mm-hmm. or the That's front right. desk. They're just That's people right. who make appointments, you know. And I'm like, no, they're more than that. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're the front door. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and they've either got a welcome mat put out or they've yeah. got barbed wire there. Yeah, and, yeah, and, you know, if, yep. if your receptionist has barbed wire out in front of her computer, that's not doing your practice any good. I I keep saying to advocates who are ready to expand beyond themselves, um which to me is so exciting. That means that somebody's got enough business that they're ready to take that next step. And the key for them is that it's not that they have to do everything themselves. It's just that they have to understand how it fits and why it's important. Well, that's great. How it fits. They have to understand how it fits. I like that. Yep. How it fits and, that, and why it's important. So, um, And once you understand that, then you can start to delegate parts of what you're doing and you can grow a little bit of freeze up some of your own time to do parts of you know, the parts you like. Right. And uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and for most advocates, that's working directly with their patients. Right, right, because you got to do the other stuff, the other stuff, yep. you know, the books, and you know, oh, I, yeah. I, you know, it took me a while to get somebody to realize doing my own billing was taking more than a day for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's a day, and and I call it in the Start and Grow Your Own Handbook. I call that opportunity cost is opportunity lost. That's like yep. the only thing I remember from. Economics 101 in college. <laughs> well, that's so, a good one to remember. It was a good one to remember, wasn't it? And the point is, if it took you a day to do all the billing, um, it might cost you $100 to pay somebody to do that for you. They'd be much more efficient and they'd get it all done and everything would be out. But you might have made $500 working yourself that same day. Exactly. So what it really cost you by doing it yourself was $500. Well, and then the stress. I mean, I think, oh, God, I have to do my, you know, at that time, oh, I have to do my billing. You know, it was like, oh, you know, and the stress of it was was not worth a moment's time. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. So true. So um, 
Gosh, this is a great conversation. It's going so fast. But I really want to talk about this book, which I think everybody should have in their library, and it's called You Bet Your Life, Uh The Ten Mistakes Every Patient Makes. And do you know, at the moment, I'm doing a revised version of it. I'm hoping to have it come out just at the beginning of the summer. Um, It's almost, well, it's three and a half years old. It's been almost four years since it was submitted to the publisher. Uh And even though probably 95% of it is still all accurate, there have been enough changes in these last four years or so that there are things to add and a few things to, uh, I don't think remove probably, but edit in any case. So that was my first book. That was the one, you know, in my lifetime I always thought, I want to write a book someday. I want to write a book someday. So that was the first one. And I have to tell you that um, when I held the first copy of my hand, that was when I cried and fell apart. It really wasn't so much about the... um, you know, finding out that I I didn't have cancer, it was the, I, I think more than anything else, it was the completion of that whole cathartic cycle that I had gone through, that I had actually accomplished something huge in light of the fact that I'd gone through something horrible, and um, and it was important. And, and to this day, it is still selling very well on Amazon.com, which floors me because it's four years old. Um, I still get orders from it, for it myself every once in a while, which also floors me, mm-hmm. um, it was, uh, putting it together was actually quite frightening at times because I would find these stories and and then I would have to adjust a whole chapter because I'd have to make room for that story because it was so important for that story to be written. So um, it's used and- now in five different universities that are teaching patient advocacy courses as wow. their text for helping their students understand how the healthcare system works. Wow, congratulations. That's really a milestone Thank you. Thank to have you. any medical school think, even use those words. Well, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, what this is about, it's a, it's a reality check. But it's uh, it's not about the healthcare system is horrible. It's about this is the reality, and so if you understand it, you can use it. And, and I'll give you an example. You know, people get all upset because, quote, unquote, doctors make so much money. Mm-hmm. And And what they don't understand is, the thought process that a medical student has to go through. So now you're in your second or third year of medical school, and they're saying to you, you need to select a specialty. And, you know, we all think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have so many more primary care doctors? There's such um, a lack of primary care doctors, as, as I'm sure you know. So they get to that point, and all their lives they've thought, you know what, I just want to go back to my little hometown, and I want to be the doctor. Mm-hmm. And then what they find out is they're going to come out of medical school $300,000 in debt. Right. And they're going to come out with that $300,000 in debt whether they become a primary care doctor or a dermatologist. Now, further, as a primary care doctor, not only are they going to be in the office 10 or 12 hours a day, but they're going to have to take every other weekend. Um, and, you know, even holidays and vacations, they're going to have to find somebody to cover for them. And so that's kind of a rough life. Now, if they become a dermatologist, they're going to work eight to five, and because there aren't dermatology emergencies, you know, they're not going to be. They might be on call, but maybe they'll get a call every three months. Then further, as a primary care doctor, they might make a hundred fifty, hundred seventy-five thousand dollars a year, which sounds like a lot until you realize that the first thing that comes out of that is the payment for that three hundred thousand dollars school debt. And then second is the liability insurance. And the liability insurance. And if they become a dermatologist, they're still going to have that debt. They're still going to have liability insurance. But they're going to be making $500,000 a year. And so it's going to get paid off three times as fast. So, you know, what kind of a decision is there to be made? It's just amazing to me that as many people go into primary care as do go into primary care. Yes, and it's actually getting so much worse. It is. And so I I explain all of that only to say that's how the book is. The book is, if you understand this, then even if you don't like it, it makes sense, and now you can work around it to fix it for yourself. Well, let me just for our listeners, and if anybody, we we only have about 15 minutes left, but if anybody wants to call in, it's 805-830-8363. I know people are listening. I always have lots of listeners. They don't always call in. Um, I would love it if they called in. Yes, I would too. So if you're out there listening, come on, gang, call. She's got lots of information. Um, 
So let me just read some of the, like, mistake number two, thinking doctors put their patients' needs first. Mm -hmm. I'm just reading some of the chapters, and um, I love the little quotes you have. Oh, um, thank you. you have, never go to a doctor. Who is this by? Um, who is this by? Irma uh, Brombeck? Irma Brombeck, yes. Yeah, never go to a doctor whose office plants have died. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I get that. <laughs> and then, well, you know, not just you have a mistake, you have a fix. You have a fix, like the chapter, uh, either the, you know, the next chapter, the one following is, you know, an, an inpatient strategy for choosing the doctor doctor right. Mm -hmm. You know, so not just are you saying, okay, here's what's wrong. You're also telling people how to do it, how right. to make the right choices when things seem to be going wrong. Right. Well, at least some strategies for for doing better than you would without knowing that. So, yeah, the whole book is set up on here's the mistake we make. This is what we don't understand. And then I explain it so that you do understand it. And then the next chapter is always, so now that we understand it, here's some things we can do differently to make it work for us. And and I, I'm told, well, actually, maybe one of the best compliments I got about it was when my daughter tried to read it, and she said, Mom, I can't read this book. It sounds too much like you. It sounds like you're talking in my ear. <laughs> and that just struck me funny, but it really was a, a compliment of sorts because what it means is I really did write the book in my own voice. Yes, which and just to tell people there's some real there are some great stories in here. Stories which every there's a story in here that everybody can identify with. Yes. You know, I there's a, so. such a variety of stories about different people and what they've gone through in the healthcare system. And you know, the, the reality is we all have a story. Yes, you we know, have, and, and that's we why we're interested. Yep. I'll yep. tell you. I, let me give you a good example from the book about um, it's it's a good example of how the book is written, but it's also a good example of why it's time to revise it. So, mm -hmm. one of the stories in there is about a woman who contacted me because her husband had been diagnosed with prostate cancer, mm -hmm. and he went to a very well recognized um, urologist or urology surgeon. Um, who said, okay, we're going to do, you know, we need to do this kind of a surgery, and we're going to do this and this and this and this. Then they went home, and the wife got online, and all she was reading about was robotic surgery. Mm -hmm. So they went for a second opinion, mm -hmm. and they learned all about the robotic surgery and all of the wonders of how much it was going to be, or what the experience was going to be so much better using the robotic surgery. And mm -hmm. she wrote, to, and they went back to the first surgeon and said, why didn't you recommend this? And he said, because... I don't think it's that much better. And they mm -hmm. keep saying it's better, but I'm not sure it is. She mm -hmm. wrote to me, now that, again, this is four, this is five years ago now, wrote to me and said, why would doctor number one tell us that the robot isn't any good when everything we're hearing over here says that it's so much better? And my mm -hmm. answer to her was simple. It's because the first surgeon doesn't do the robotic surgery. Mm -hmm. He's not going to tell you it's better. Therefore, you need to go someplace else. He wants to do the surgery. He wants your husband to be his patient. He wants to make the money from doing the surgery on your husband. Why would he tell you to go someplace else where they use different tools? But these years later, now they're finding all the research about the robots came strictly from the manufacturer of the robot. Right. It didn't come from independent research. And right. the independent research these years later is finding that Maybe the outcomes aren't that much better after all. I have to, just to add to that, this year alone I've had three injuries, clients who have come to me with, not not from malpractice, but to do appeals, like, uh, of robotics, go surgery's gone bad. Yeah. You know, like you know why? The, because the, the surgeon is trained in a weekend on yeah, how to use uh, the robot. Yeah. In a weekend. Yeah. It's just outrageous. But in the meantime, the answer now is, you need to know the pros and cons of using the robot, the pros and cons of the surgery. They're, they're still saying that the initial recovery is quicker yes, using the robot. Yes, yes. And, that's, and that's that might be sell. just valuable enough that somebody says, okay, I'm going to choose the robot. But the long-term outcomes over a span of two, three, four years are no better and no worse having used the robot, but it's a whole lot more expensive using the robot. Okay, we have a caller on the line. Let's Yay. see what the caller has to say. Hello, this is Hari and Tricia. Do you have a question for Tricia? Yes, I was thinking about health reform and wondering with all of the massive changes that are coming our way, what particular niche you might uh, recommend if you're not clinical in nature with your background. 
Um, a niche based on the fact that health care reform is coming down the pike? Or just I a guess. niche just in general? Well, I would say there are actually a couple of them. First of all, um, and, and I'm going to say this kind of tongue-in-cheek. This doesn't go any further. I mean, I realize that this is the radio. But when people <laughs> ask me about how I feel about health care reform and um, the Affordable Care Act, I tell them as a patient empowerment consultant and a health advocacy consultant, my answer is I call it job security. You know, and that's, of course, not the answer they're looking for. The truth is I w- I'm a huge supporter of the ACA, but I'm also very realistic enough to recognize that it's going to take us 12, 15, 20 years to get it working the way it really needs to work. And the unfortunate part of that is that it's all on the backs of the baby boomers. And yeah. so we baby boomers are going to pay the price, but our kids are going to be a whole lot better off than we are. And so I am a supporter. So in terms of health advocacy and reaching out to help other people, there are a couple of things that can be done. First of all, there is going to be this whole group of 32 million Americans who have never bought health insurance before, and they're going to need to know what's important. Now, the ACA is setting up a system of what they're calling navigators, poor, poor, poor choice of words, because they're not being navigated through anything. They're just being helped in choosing health insurance. There's going to be training, um, but mostly volunteers are going to be doing that kind of um, help for patients who need to choose health insurance for the first time. But I think there's going to be a niche for people who can go out and help somebody determine whether or not they should buy the insurance or pay the penalty. How do you like that one? If you're a healthy family of four and, you know, all you're going to weather is a kid breaking an arm or something like that, I'm not sure you have to buy health insurance. The the penalty might be less expensive. Now, that probably sounds like sacrilege. Um, And and be prepared to pay out of pocket if something happens. Um, But I think that there's going to be a niche for advisors who can help people determine where they fit in that new scenario. Oh, the other thing, this one just comes to mind. Knowing that we're going to have 32 million Americans who have access to health insurance, therefore access to providers, some for the first time in perhaps decades, um, and knowing that we have the dwindling number of primary care doctors. And, Hari, you're a nurse practitioner. You're seeing it, I'm sure. You're finding nurse practitioners are beginning to burn out in bigger numbers and are struggling to keep up with patient workloads. I think there's going to be a bigger role for care coordinators, somebody who can say, okay, let me pull together the information from your cardiologist and your um, diabetes doctor, you know, whatever it's going to be, and help you go to your primary care doctor to coordinate all of these. And it's not, even if you're not a clinical person, you can still be pulling records together. You're, as an advocate, we don't give medical advice anyway, but we can pull together the right records and make sure that things are in a readable form so that another doctor or nurse practitioner or um, physician assistant can help us coordinate care. So those are just two off the top of my head. The other thing I would say, anybody who's called to this, and I do think it's a calling for most, um, is called to it because of their own experience. And your own experience was based on something. It might have been based on someone else with cancer. It might be because you have a thyroid problem yourself. It could be that you worked in an insurance company and claims and you got fed up with what the bills looked like and the troubles people were having. If you can use your own experience to create your own niche, even if you have to go back to school to learn more about it, then I think that's worthwhile too. So does that help? Does that does that help answer your questions? Uh, it does, and it makes me also wonder how to network with other uh, specialists or many specialists in the field. If your uh, flavor is one part of the healthcare system, and you need to find um, a healthcare attorney or an accountant or a case manager to work with you with your clients, the best way to do that? Well, um, one of the big benefits of the Alliance of Professional Health Advocates, so you can find that online at aphadvocates.org, so Alliance of Professional Health Advocates, aphadvocates.org. One of the big advantages is that we have several different ways to network with other people. And we have any number of members who've done that kind of outreach. I need somebody to help me with legal. I need somebody to help me with whatever. First, we have advisors to help you um, with many aspects of your business. We have a legal advisor, an insurance advisor, a shared decision-making advisor, um, patient safety advisor. We have a number of different advisors. But beyond that, 
we give you different forums for reaching out to other members who have expertise in some of these areas so that if you want a partner working together on um, a one patient scenario or if, um, and maybe one of the big ones is you might be located in Albuquerque, but one of your Albuquerque friends is called about her mother who lives in Chicago. You can reach out to people who are in Chicago who you know are members of the alliance, can kind of pick their brain, learn more about them. And it turns out to be one of the biggest benefits we've got are these networking possibilities. So why don't you give that website again, Tricia? It's um, APH Advocates, the Alliance of Professional Health Advocates, APHAdvocates.org. Okay, thank you so much. I'm going to have to let you go because the show's just coming to an end, and I really appreciate that you called, and I hope that you got some answers. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. I'm glad you had a caller, too. It's always <laughs> great to know what it is people wish they knew. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, so so we are getting close to the end, and we have a, a just real quick um, – and you sort of answered it in that question. So, caller, thank you so much for asking that question. Yes, you know, and I, I will be sending her a check when the when the show is over oh. because she asked exactly <laughs> the right thing. I don't know who she was, but if you want to get in touch with me, thank you. <laughs> I should have answered that. My apology, call, I apologize to you, caller, for not asking your name. So, uh, but thanks for calling. Um, so, we only have three minutes. You have to answer this in a minute, and then I have one more question. Um, the future. You sort of uh, that's sort of the future of advocacy. We're going to see a big need for advocates. I mean, yes. is that like when I envision? You know, I just see this like, okay, everyone's going to need one soon. Yes, they are. And you know, um, I, I think one of the disappointing things is that we don't have more. But one of the most exciting things is that this is somebody. It's something that as soon as people identify that it's a place they can be. They love it. As I said, it's like a calling to most of these folks. And so, um, and there is a lot of training around the country. We actually have a site, healthadvocateeducation.com, and um, you can go there. If you get to APH Advocates, you can link to any of the rest of these. But um, we have about 25 different education organizations around the country now that are teaching courses in this. And so there are many doors in. There's no certification yet. And so since there's no certification, anybody, that's the good news and the bad news, anybody can say they're an advocate. We actually, the people who end up in the Advo Connection Directory, we actually vet them to an extent to make sure they're actually doing the work. But it is. It's a wide open field, and everybody's going to need an advocate because pretty soon we're not going to have a moment's worth of time with our doctors. That's true. There's going to be too many people wanting access. And, and not that's enough doctors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And... Well, that's a whole other issue about nurse practitioners and doctors. I'll do that some other day. Oh, um, you know, I've written so much about nurse practitioners. To me, they're, you're going to be the saviors of yeah. the healthcare system. I know, but yeah. the docs, the AMA is pushing very hard for that not to happen. Yeah, but but they're not going to win. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. So real quick, <laughs> we have just about a minute and a half. So what's your sage advice for people in terms of advocates? I mean, I know 30 seconds, a little over 30 seconds or less, but I like to ask people that about in terms, just, I don't know, some end of end of conversation thoughts. About finding an advocate or becoming yeah. one? About well, finding well, an advocate? Yeah, let's do fine. Um, we spent more time on helping people than actually yep. becoming, so. Yeah, I would say um, ask the question. You know, so many people just step back and they sort of self-select and they say, you know what, I think it's going to be too expensive. Or, you know what, I don't know what it means. Or, you know what, I might have to tell somebody a secret about my health. Whatever it is, but you could do that all day long and never get the health you need. Ask the help you need. Ask the questions. Just mm-hmm. get out there and ask the questions. I think mm-hmm. I need this. How much might it cost me? What mm-hmm. is involved? What is it we need to do? You know, can we work together and then not work together anymore? Ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Every advocate is out there ready to give you the answers, and you can still say no, but yeah. you're never going to know whether somebody can help you unless you ask the questions, and that's really my best advice. Good. So everybody out there, get your questions ready. <laughs> so that's, the send them up. to Hari <laughs> because she can definitely help you. That's for sure. Yeah, as well. Okay, so uh, you gave the website. You're available. You love. You, you're good at answering emails. And uh, I just want to thank you so much. It's been a great show. And I know that a lot of people are listening and they feel the same way. I know I'll get a lot of comments. And 
Um, so thank you so much, Tricia, for taking the time. Um, you know, my as pleasure, everybody Hari. Knows. Yeah, I, I okay. appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone, and we'll be back in a couple weeks uh, for Healthcare Whisperer uh, Empowered Radio Station Radio Program. And thank you again. Bye, bye.